Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. There was a businessman who was known for his ruthlessness. He once announced to Mark Twain, Before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I will climb Mount Sinai and read the Ten Commandments aloud from the very top. To which Mark Twain replied, I have a better idea. You should stay in Boston and keep them. Ha, 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 ha. Where's my drum thing when you need? Yeah. Today, we come to a passage of Scripture this second month in June. The longest passage in the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible. And the chapter focuses on the Word of God. God's commandments, God's instructions. It's Psalm 119. And this whole psalm is the psalmist writing about his love for the word and the instructions and the commandments of God. If I were to go around and take a poll today of all of you, would you say you love God's commands? You love his instructions, his teachings? Would you say they are so apart? of your desire and who you are, that they are something you long for day in and day out. I'm going to guess, maybe not in this community of faith, but in the community of faith across the globe, many people would say, love the commands? I love to research and to search the instructions and the commands of God. I, I love God, don't get me wrong, but... I have struggled reading the Word and understanding the Word, much less to love it. Yeah, I know it's the right thing to do, but man, I get so frustrated. I don't understand it. It's exhausting. And quite honestly, you don't realize my schedule is such that I, I, I don't have the time necessary to give it the importance in my life that I otherwise might be able to. Maybe when I, when I get a few things offloaded off my calendar and my schedule, then I'll spend more time studying the commandments and the words and the instructions of God. Maybe. But you know what I found out? Living a life that's extremely busy, not just being a pastor, but being a dad, a husband, uh, a friend, you only find time for those things you make a priority. And the reality is, the Bible, if we're being honest, can sometimes be boring. And when we scale that next to going and doing what we really like to do, it finds its way further and further on down the run. Now, you expect me as a pastor to tell you, You need to be in the Word. You need to wake up like John Wesley or some of the other people did at three or four in the morning and begin your prayer time and pray for three hours just to get started. 
and then read the word and study it. This guy preached day in and day out, multiple sermons a day. Who knows how many sermons this guy had, right? That is dedication. <laughs> I don't wake up at three or four in the morning to pray. Uh, I do pray, and I pray regularly, but I'm not as dedicated as John Wesley. But here's the problem. Here's the issue, is we like to compare ourselves. We get into this comparison game. Well, I read the Bible, maybe not as much as Pastor Brandon, but I read it more than my husband or my wife or my neighbor or my family member. I read it more than... And so we get into this comparison game, and that's what the enemy would have us do. The enemy loves to have us compare ourselves to each other. The reality is, when compared to an all-holy God, we, feel, we realize how fall, far we fall short, right? And this is where discouragement can set in a lot of times. We don't get as discouraged when we're comparing ourselves to each other, but when we compare ourselves to God, it is completely and utterly discouraging. But the reality is there is a God who doesn't hold us in a place of discouragement, but one who lifts us to a place of hopefulness, one who loves us enough to send his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's the kind of God, when we are compared to him, we realize we don't measure up, but he comes down so that we can measure up when we believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That's the point. And so now we go back to this Old Testament passage and this long book of Psalms, the longest chapter in the book of Psalms or in the whole Bible itself, and we realize that the essence of the psalmist saying that he loves God's word and his commands and his instructions and that there is integrity and joy, there's joy for the person of integrity and there's joy for the person of purity who seeks God and seeks to follow his ways we realize there's more than just this surface reading of, I have to read my Bible so many chapters a day or I'm not good enough. So let's delve into this today. In commenting on the whole of Psalm 119, biblical scholar and author James Mays explains that God is the teacher, creation is the classroom, the students are the servants of God. The lesson is the law of God, or what we call the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Learning is the way of life, he says. Such is the faith and the vision of this longest psalm. Psalm 119 is the sequel to Psalm 1 and Psalm 19, ironically, believe it or not. If you read those and then you read Psalm 119, you see how they play together. Like the first, it knows the delight of the law of the Lord and the importance of the constant study of it. Like the 19th Psalm, it knows the inestimable value of the law in all of its forms as a life-enhancing power. But in its design, it has taken the topic to the limits of literary expression. So Psalm 119 has multiple different sections, and those sections correspond with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This guy, the psalmist, is writing this psalm, and he wants to show God how much he appreciates the words from God, the law by going through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is why it's so long. And this is how he starts. Verse one. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Joyful are the people, or excuse me, joyful are people of integrity. 
who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him in all their heart, with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life to your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey all your decrees, and then I love this little tag on this section, please don't give up on me. How can a young person stay pure? Well, by obeying your word. I've tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you have given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I like to read whole chapters of Scripture. But this one, we would be here. That would be the message today if I read the whole of Psalm 119. But I challenge you, when you leave this place today, sometime this week, finish the whole of Psalm 119. You'll get the depth and the breadth of what the author of this specific psalm is trying to get at. Here's a takeaway this morning. The pursuit of patience, which has been our theme all year, involves reflecting on God's commands. You want to be patient? You want to learn the art of patience? It's not just praying for it and then God challenging you in that area. It's actually, it involves reflecting on the word of God. It involves taking time, as we talked about last week, to rest in God but now also in that resting in God to reflect on everything he has told us through his word. Now, I've grown up in the past 46 years going from pendulum extreme uh, of the Bible reading to another. I, I, I've seen statistics out there that talk about evangelical Christians who hold, a high, um, uh, hold high the authority of Scripture have a low um, biblical worldview. The reason is because we live in a time and a day where, and I'm not talking about the outside world. I'm not talking about our culture, in the American culture. I'm talking about in the American church. The discipline of reflecting on the word of God has become so low that we don't have a high rate of biblical literacy within the American church. Or we take the Bible and we, we do this well. We pull pieces out to prop up an argument that we really like, but oftentimes taking something out of context and making it say what it really didn't say in the first place. You've heard me say this before. How many of you have, all right, it's probably emails, text messages, Instagram. Back in my day, we used to write letters. And we used to, if we got a letter from somebody that, you know, we were really fond of, right? So somebody we loved, somebody like a wife or soon-to-be wife, we would hang on every word, wouldn't we? 
Even if it was, hey, I got up and I ate cereal this morning and then I brushed my teeth and then I went to work. I mean, somebody we love, we hang on every word. I never got a letter from Sarah Lee when we were dating that I just read the first line and I said, whew, that's all I can handle today. Or the, I, I never started in the middle with a paragraph and said, oh, that's good. She hates me. Because I read it out of context, right? Because I didn't read the before and after paragraphs. No, I started and I devoured it. And then I would reflect on it. And then I would go back to it and make sure it said what I thought it said. And then I would look at it some more and then I would put it away. And then I would think about it through the day. And then I would look at it again and read. By, t- by the way, this is our anniversary today. It's 23 years. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> And it's been bliss for 23 years, hasn't it? Yeah, good times. No, it actually has been good times. We have, we, I'm just, I'm kidding. We have reflected on these 23 years, and honestly, it's been rough at times, but we wouldn't change anything. You know, when we reflect on our past and how God has led us through each stage of our marriage and raising our kids and going from a podunk town in Kentucky to Florida to Ohio, then to Pennsylvania. It's been fulfilling. It's not been easy, but it's been fulfilling. Anyway, I digress. But whenever we would get these, whenever I would get the letters, I don't know when she got my letters, I'm not sure how she, how she reacted to those, but I reacted just this. I would swoon over them. I would get to the point where it almost memorized the lines, especially the ones where she talked about how much I meant to her. When we look at God's word in these ways, when we see it for what it truly is, it is not just some other book. It is not just some other piece of literature that we put on a shelf only to bring down at certain times. It is a love letter from an all-holy God who has been in pursuit of humanity since the fall in the Garden of Eden, who has said, listen, I love you. I don't, I don't like when you do these things that draw you away from me. I don't like you living in ways that put a wedge between you and I. I want to be with you. And I'm going to show you how much I want to be with you by continuing to pursue you through some of your darkest times. Even when you stiff arm me and reject me, I'm going to continue to pursue you because I love you. To the point to where he would at a certain point in time in human history step out of eternity and into time and take on human flesh. See, this word that the psalmist is talking about becomes flesh and dwells among us which we'll talk about in a minute. So what do we learn from these 16 verses? Again, way more than 16 verses. We learn first off that integrity results from following God's commands. Before we unpack the meaning of integrity and how it brings us joy, which is what the author says, we need to delve into the focus, uh, the focus of this particular psalm, which is God's law. When you read through there and you read, he loves God's law, he's talking about this word called Torah, T-O-R-A-H. And Torah is, yes, law. We can, 
Go all the way back and look at the words of the law that originated with God first at Mount Sinai, audibly to the people, which we call the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments, given to the people directly from God. That is the basis of the law. But the law really encapsulates the whole story of creation up to the inhabitation of the land of Israel by the Israelites. So it's Genesis through Deuteronomy. So when, when the psalmist is writing this, he says, I love your law. I love Genesis through Deuteronomy. They are words of life for me. They help keep me basically a person of integrity, and I find joy in that. They help purify me to live in the right ways so that I draw even closer to you. This is what this psalm is about. We need to understand the Torah as the people did in the day of Christ and even earlier in the psalmist's day. But more than that, what we understand about the Torah, the first five books of Scripture, including the history of how God revealed himself in the early days, is that God was working sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes leading very prevalently in a way that was unmistakable. The law or the Torah, writes George Livingston, is the total teachings of God revealed to man. He goes on to write, remembering human frailty and instability and knowing that man cannot of himself obey God's law, the psalmist prays for divine power to regulate a right and establish his ways. Like, Lord, help me. <laughs> I love your word. I'm working hard at it. But in essence, he confesses, there are days that I fail. Now, he never comes right out and says that outright in these first 16 verses, but he says, please don't give up on me. If he was doing it perfectly, do you think he would say, God, don't give up on me? No, he'd be like, hey, God, I'm doing it perfectly. I thank you very much. Right? It's like when Jesus was talking to this rich young ruler in the New Testament. And he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, I've kept all the commandments perfectly. You should not commit adultery. You shouldn't murder, blah, blah, blah. You haven't coveted. And Jesus says, oh, good. Then go sell off all your belongings and give away all your wealth, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. See, leaning into God's word and God's law isn't about just following some rote basic commands. It's about living this life of transformation. These aren't just words. These are words of God who loves us relentlessly who pursues us in a way that is beyond any other pursuit in this world. And he desires for us to be in such intimate relationship with him that he's willing to do what most of us, or I would say, I dare say any of us would ever do. See, Jesus gave his life for people who would reject him to the very last breath, who spat upon him, who beat him, who abused him. But he still loved them. The ones who mocked him as he walked that road of Calvary, 
the very living word of God that the psalmist is talking about in written form, the one that became flesh and dwelt among us, he was mocked, abused, cursed by the people. Even the ones who were his closest confidants would in his last moments flee, in essence rejecting him. So now back to the meaning of integrity in the psalmist that he mentions in verse 1. What does the word integrity actually mean? And how integral is it to understanding God's word? I've heard it said that integrity is what you do when nobody's looking. Doing the right thing when nobody's looking. We don't live in a society that promotes that, though. We live in a society that promotes doing things that others can see you doing good so that you can get accolades and affirmation. But integrity is what you do in the dark. What do you do when nobody's looking? Are you doing the things of God, things that would please God? Are you following his commands even when nobody is looking? Where do you find yourself going on the computer when nobody's at home? Where do you find yourself going when your family doesn't know where you are? What are you doing behind closed doors? See, the word translated as integrity from the Hebrew in this verse means to be complete or unscathed, intact, blameless, without fault, free of blemish, or impeccable. A guilt-free soul, if you will, is the person who is joyful. But Brandon, you don't know what I've done. No, you're right, I don't. And I may not know every detail, even if you come and talk to me in my office, and we unpack some things together. But God knows. God knows everything. He is all-knowing. And so we stand before him, in essence, completely and utterly, spiritually naked. He knows everything about us. And though you may be able to hide what's in your heart from other people, the psalmist is asking to hide God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against him. See, this thing about Christianity is not a secret religion. It's not. And this is why I really balk at the idea that my faith is private. I hear this argument all the time, my faith is private. No, it's not. You cannot be a believer in Christ and have a private faith. You just can't. Everything I read in the Old Testament and the New Testament is not about hiding it under a bushel, right? Do you know what I mean? It's about letting it shine before men so that others might see God in heaven. And others might see the way to him through Jesus Christ. It's about transparency. It's about honesty. And it's about speaking the truth in love even when the truth hurts. It's never about condemnation, pointing a finger of judgment, because we haven't been put in that position to do that. God is the ultimate sole judge of all humanity, and someday he will separate the sheep from the goats, as the scripture tells us. Some to eternal life and some to eternal damnation. And we don't like to talk about that because it's not politically correct. It's not fun to talk about. We like to talk about the good things of, of, of living a life uh, dedicated to God. We don't like to talk about the counter to that. But we have to if we're going to be faithful to the word of God. And see, this is something the psalmist understood. To be a person of integrity is to, is to live out this love of God 
in practical ways on a daily basis. The psalmist didn't see these, again, as merely um, notches in his belt. I didn't commit adultery today. Ba-boom. I didn't murder anybody in the past three years. Ba-boom. And I didn't murder anybody in my mind either. You ever done that? Have you ever said, I'm going to kill you? But you didn't mean it. But you thought it. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen even a paperclip from the office? Have you ever done much of anything like that? And you're, to be a person of integrity is, yes, to be blameless and perfect before God. But when we aren't, he says, please don't give up on me. I'm striving and struggling to be a person of integrity. I'm not willfully going out and contradicting your instructions. But when I do, don't give up on me. See, this thing called grace that Christ came to give in addition to forgiveness of sin that covers a multitude of sin. It doesn't give us license to willy-nilly go out and do what we want whenever we want because Jesus will forgive us eventually. Paul says you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't go out that grace may abound all the more in your life and do things that you shouldn't do. I want more of God's grace, so I'm going to go sin it up. You don't do that. That's not how we are to live life. The one who loves God willingly submits to God's ways because it's what draws us into perfect intimacy. I go back to, to this, and you've heard me say this before, but it's not like I would say to my wife, I commit to the vows of our wedding to love and to cherish in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do we part. And then later on say, um, you know, you're pretty sick. It's a terminal illness. So, well, I think, uh, I think I'm going to go now. Right? See, my love for my wife is not conditional, just as my love for God is not conditional. I love him. He loves me unconditionally. So I don't do anything that would even consider jeopardizing that. I'm going to stay as far away from inappropriate relationships or even the appearance of an inappropriate relationship because I value my relationship with my wife above all other relationships on this earth with exception to my relationship with God. Does this make sense? So I'm, the psalmist is saying, I want to be a person of integrity, not to look good to everybody else, but because I want to be in intimate connection with the one I love the most. And I never want to jeopardize that. I never want to ruin that. I never want there to be any suspicion whatsoever that that's called into question. I want to love with a sincere love that goes beyond mere rhetoric but lives itself out daily through action. God, I love your law. Not because the law saves me, because it shows me where you are. Not because the law can fix me, but by obeying the law, I come in closer intimacy with him. See, Paul talks about the contrast between the law and grace in his magnum opus we call the book of Romans in the New Testament. And he contrasts the two. He says exactly what I just said to you. The law could not save you. It merely points out what's wrong in our lives and what has separated us from God. 
The law, in essence, he said, is the litmus test. Okay? Do you catch this? The law is, well, I don't know what's right and wrong. I guess I just go figure it out on my own. No, he's given us a document, a revelation of what his expectations are. Would you ever go into a commitment to buy a house or a car without a contract? No, you probably wouldn't, would you? Would you ever, and I know, I hate reading the fine print, but would you ever not read the fine print in your insurance documentation to see what it actually covers and what it doesn't? Because here's the case. Many of us have gotten into situations where we've tried to make a claim because something's happened and we realize, oh, our insurance policy didn't cover that. I probably should have read a little bit deeper into that. We have no excuse not to know right from wrong because God has laid it out for us. And if anything, we stand in condemnation toward ourselves for not living by his ways, his instructions. And he gives us that because he loves us. There, here's, I, I do premarital counseling. And one of the things I talk about in the first two sessions is expectations. We talk about realistic expectations and unrealistic expectations. And we talk about clear communication. Have you ever had somebody not measure up to your expectations of them? Yes? How about your spouse or your loved ones? They don't do what you expect them to do or not do what you don't expect them to do. I'm talking about innocuous things. I'm not talking about adultery and those kind of things. I'm talking about just like if they would just pick up their shoes. You know how many times have I tripped over that blasted set of shoes? But I'm not going to tell them. They should know. So I'm going to harbor this resentment toward them because they should know if they really love me. That's how we live out relationships. And we harbor tension and resentment and bitterness. Why don't they pick up the towel off the floor after they get out of the shower? Why don't they put the toilet paper on the right way? Why don't they squeeze the tube of toothpaste from the bottom instead of the middle? I mean, it's logical. If they were logical, they would do it. Right? But this is how we approach Scripture, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. God has given us everything we need to know. And then we give God the blame when we do something wrong. Don't we? Am I, am I losing you guys? <clears throat> I, God gets a blame for a lot of junk that is not his. And we, we blame God. God, why didn't you bail me out of this? Why didn't you stop me before I made this decision? And he says, I've given you instructions. Did you read those? It's like guys putting together one of those solder tables or desks and they try to follow the instructions, but then after a while they're like, ugh. And you throw it and you're like, hey, I got like seven or eight screws and bolts left, but I'm sure it'll stand up. And then after enough wear and tear, I mean, solder's not really strong to begin with, it starts to fall apart. We have instructions. We have no reason for not following them. What about purity? He says in the next section, purity results from obeying God's word. So what I'm hearing from you, Brandon, is if I do this, this, and this, then I'm saved. 
I have to follow God's rules and then I'm okay. No, if that's what you walk away from hearing today, you have totally misunderstood the message. The message isn't about works righteousness where it's about, okay, at the end of time when I'm standing in front of the judgment seat of Christ that my good deeds are going to be measured against my bad deeds and if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'm in heaven, right? No. Then Jesus would have not needed to come at all if it was about that. That is a part of the Islamic religion. They believe if you do more good things than bad things according to the Quran in the words of Muhammad, then eventually, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and you're standing before the judgment seat of Allah, then you'll be in heaven. And a surefire way to get to heaven in some extreme sects of that religion are suicide bombings and those kind of things. We don't worship God that way. We don't worship God by the very minimum of saying, well, if I do more good than bad, then I'm going to make it into heaven. And that's, that is a teaching or a philosophy or an ideology that has so infiltrated the Christian church of our day and age with feel-good messages that just tell us, just tell us the good stuff. Well, You've you got to have the good along with the bad. You've got to see the right along with the wrong. You have to understand what is holy from what is unholy in order to make an educated decision. See, this is one of the cool things about God and about Jesus is that they lay it out, the good and the bad. They lay out the dichotomy between the two. So you can have an educated decision. If you don't have somebody laying out the pros and the cons to show you the good from the bad and what the true results of either decision you make are gonna be, then you're following the wrong leader. See, God pulls out the stops. He tries to make it very clear for us. He never tries to complicate issues. And when we read Scripture and we get confused, it's not because we're dumb. It's oftentimes because we don't understand the scope of the teachings of Scripture because we weren't meant to learn this in a vacuum all alone. We were meant to learn this within the context of the body of Christ as iron sharpens iron, challenging one another to good works. That's why it's really heartbreaking, if I'm being honest, that since COVID, a lot of people have left. Yeah, many are watching online, and that's great, but there's something about being a part of a face-to-face -face community, and this isn't knocking any other way. Please understand me. This isn't a word of condemnation, but we were created as the body of Christ to live in community face-to-face -face together. The tools that we have at our disposal are great to continue to keep people connected, but they are only substitutions for a season. And maybe this isn't the context, the main morning worship. Get involved in a small group where you can be face-to-face -face in the home of somebody, studying the Word of God, praying together, worshiping. Sorry, that was a tangent. So living by the Word of God is not what brings us purity. It's a change of heart, surrender to God, that brings purity. But then there's this back-and-forth play between this. So the Hebrew word, as I mentioned earlier, for word or Torah or instructions, this word in, in, in this verse where he's talking about purity resulting from God's word is the same word used in the Greek called logos. Have you ever heard of the word logos? 
Okay, so this word is used in John's gospel where he says, in the beginning the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. Light is illumination. We could talk about this illumination of truth through the living embodiment of God through Christ. The word made flesh who dwelt among us, which is verse 14. He goes on to say in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. So, verse 14, the word became human and made his dwelling among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, John is saying, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Do you catch the deep theological treaties that John starts his gospel out with. He is saying, let there be no mistake. Jesus was God. I talked about that in my class this morning. Is Where do you see evidence of Christ at the beginning of time in the creation narrative? You've heard me. I probably sound like a broken record if you heard me any amount of time. If this is new to you, listen with perked up ears. He was in there, he was in the creation narrative in the beginning because how did God create everything? He spoke it into existence. The very words from the Father brought everything into existence. And even Paul talks about this in Colossians chapters 1 and 2 when he talks about the supremacy of Christ. He says everything exists and that does exist came into existence through him and by him and exists for him and all things hold together in him. Yes? So this is the common meta-narrative that continues from the beginning to the end of Scripture. And you cannot make this stuff up. This stuff ties together perfectly. And so the psalmist is talking about the Word of God, which brings purity. And then the Word in John's day and age, and as we know in the post um, post-Christ era, if you will, after he came and was resurrected and ascended to heaven. In the Christian era, this word became flesh. The embodiment of the instructions, the teachings, and the perfections of the law became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Why? Because even the psalmist knew he couldn't do it. Nobody has been able to perfect it or perfectly live out the instructions of God. So God set us up for failure. See, he's to blame again. No. Every pursuit of God was to show us how much he loved us and what his desires were for us until it came at just the right point in time in history for him to step out of eternity and end of time, like I said earlier. Please don't give up on me, the psalmist writes. And God doesn't. Because he takes on human form as the living embodiment of the word the psalmist loved And he says, I love you. And because you can't do for you what only I can do for you, no matter what you've done can be forgiven through me. This is, do you remember last week? 
Are any of you weary and heavy burdened? Come and find rest in me. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What does he say? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's like, I know you can't do this. I didn't actually create you to carry burdens. Not of this world. I created you to carry my burden, and my burden's light. And the yoke I give you is light. So it's not like you can sit around like a couch potato doing nothing. No, but if you walk in my ways... If you take your burden, give it to me, and let my burden rest on your shoulders, it's going to be light and it's going to be easy, and you're going to live with purpose. I love you that much. I'm willing to forgive all. No matter what you've done, no matter how heinous the crime, I'm willing to forgive and extend a hand of salvation to you if you're willing to walk in my ways. Come follow me. It's what he did with his disciples. Come follow me. Come and see. James Mays writes, The word of God calls for both obedience and faith. The right hearing is faith that obeys and an obedience that believes both together as if one response. To hear is to choose the way of faithfulness. To hear is to also have a reason for trust and hope. See, the word commands and the word promises. It allows no piety that takes the form of legalism, nor any that takes the form of fideism, which is thinking that your religion is going to save you. Okay? We can go through the motions. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, there are going to be people on judgment day that say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? And he'll look at you or look at them and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's not about going through the motions. It's about a heart transformation of love of one who is completely surrendered to God, who follows him and obeys his commands out of a heart of love rather than a heart of obligation. And purity springs forth from that kind of relationship. This is why in the New Testament, Peter can say, you need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, I can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. Even Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. The scripture contradicts itself. No. No. Not unless you understand what perfection in the context of what Peter is saying actually means. Perfection translated means complete, whole. When we surrender our lives to Christ, no matter what we've done, is cast as far as the east is from the west, and taking upon Christ into ourselves, we become whole and complete as he is whole and complete. The only way to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect is to be adopted into the family through the blood of Jesus Christ and surrender your life completely to him. And to turn from your wicked ways, to leave sin behind, and do the hard work, yes, of letting that go and following Christ. This is where purity exists. George Livingston rightly hones in on a common question with each and every generation that we've had to contend with. Listen to this. It's this issue of perfection. No one is perfect except for Jesus, so why even try? Isn't it enough that God loves us? Why do we have to do anything? He writes, 
The sense of human inability to be perfect gave rise to the question posed in verse 9. How can a young person stay pure? But it's quickly answered with this, by obeying your word. Cleansing was attained by three activities, by taking heed or giving close attention to God's word, by committing it to memory. I want to hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In spite of careful seeking after truth, there was this tendency within to wander. It is a tendency within human nature for us to wander like sheep who go astray. This is why oftentimes Jesus uses sheep and shepherd analogy. Sheep are prone to wander, but when they hear the shepherd's voice, if they're truly willing, they come back to the sheepfold. But oftentimes the shepherd goes after stubborn sheep with the rod and the staff, because those are implementations of of safety and direction, and though they are also implementations of discipline, they bring comfort, as the psalmist in chapter 23 states. James Mays, and I'm getting ready to conclude, James Mays explains that it's the instruction that comes from God, but it must become a part of the servant of God. It must be gathered into the store of the heart, the mind and the mentality with which one thinks and wills. The heart itself must be converted from all else. The word is the reason and the opportunity for the human heart to be whole. And lest we think that Jesus altered this message, we need to look no further than John's gospel in John chapter 14, celebrating the last supper with his disciples before he would be arrested. And he says to his group, to his 12, if you love me, What? Obey my commands. I thought it was about, he loves us and so we're saved. He loves us, so that makes us a part of his salvation story. Here's the kicker. It requires you to do something. Now James gives us this this idea that It's about faith and works together. See, if we are believers in Christ, we're going to live by the commandments and the teachings of Christ. We aren't going to throw away a part of that. I hear oftentimes people say, yeah, I got saved when I was 9 or 10 years old, but you're living like the devil throughout the week. James says faith without works is dead. I can say a good game in front of the public and make you believe that I believe, but the life I live may show you a different story. It's about faith and works. It is those two coupled together because if you truly have faith, you're not not going to be living it out because faith is as much an action as the word love is. It's something we lean into. It's something we live out. It's not just something we say we have. John 15, verses 9 through 11, Jesus uh, writes again, or says again, I, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey the Father's commandments and I remain in his love. I've told you these things so that you, we be, you will be filled with joy. Isn't that what the psalmist was talking about? Joyful is a person of integrity. The one who lives out these commands. Jesus says the same thing. I've told you these things so that you'll be filled with joy. 
Yes, your joy will overflow. As our worship team comes forward to close this out today, I want to leave you with this final story and this final challenge. When the massive Hurricane Charlie slammed into Florida in 2004 with 145-mile-an-hour winds, it destroyed more than 12,000 homes. This was the last year Sara Lee and I lived in Lakeland, Florida, and the eye of the hurricane came all the way as far as Lakeland, and it was eerie to go outside in that quiet silence of the eye of the storm. We didn't get battered the way the coastal regions did, but when Charlie came over before, we were just months away from moving to Dayton, Ohio. When Charlie came over, we remember that. We were hunkered down in the hallway of our, of our house. Crazy, crazy experience. Anyway, different story for a different time. But it destroyed more than 12,000 homes. But listen to this. A later study by a group of insurance companies found that almost all of those homes had something in common. They had been built prior to 2001. In that year, a strict new building code was adopted which required homes to be strengthened to withstand hurricane force winds. Jeff Burton, building code manager for the Institute for Business and Home Safety said this, listen, there is very, very strong evidence that buildings built under the 2001 code that were built properly and inspected fared much, much better than buildings that were built prior. The building code, as it exists today, did its job. There is a reason for the building code, and those who follow it find that it works. The same is true for the Word of God. When we view the Bible and the teachings that it, it tells us to do or not to do, when we view it as a set of restrictions that limit what we can do, we are tempted to resent the commandments of God. Many people completely abandon any pretense of holiness or godly living because they don't want to be tied down by the rules. But yet the storm winds blow, the storm winds blow, and those who have not built their lives according to God's code find, them, find themselves facing destructions or ruin or regret because they've chosen a pattern of behavior or a way of life that is contrary to God's teachings and it doesn't withstand the storms of life. Proverbs 19, verse 16, keep the commandments and keep your life. Despising the commandments leads to death. Reflecting on God's commands in such a way that causes us to heed their instructions is so important to a life of peace and hope. Without a solid foundation, everything we build on is like shifting sand. God's word is the solid foundation for a life lived with purpose and meaning and hope, but it takes patience. This is a slow cooker, not a microwave faith. Following God's commands and precepts as written in the Bible is not easy, and at times can be downright difficult because you'll find yourself swimming upstream against the grain. It's in these times so that our patience is tested and our resolve must remain sure. So here's the challenge. Don't give up. Press onward and press upward to the high calling that God has called you to. Live your life for his purposes. And watch what God can truly do in and through your life when you're willing to do the hard things that lead you to a closer relationship with him. I don't know where you are today. I know where some of you have said you are. 
But a vast majority of you, I have no clue what's going on in your lives on a day-to-day basis. But I can assure you that God knows. And that in spite of what's going on in this turbulent, tumultuous time in your life, if you're experiencing that, God has an extended hand that says, listen, I may not yank you out of your situation, but I'll walk you through it. Again, as the psalmist says in verse tw- or chapter 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I can fear no evil because God's going to yank me out of it. No, because you are with me. I challenge you, if you haven't taken up the cause of reflecting on God's word, make it a priority. Do it within the body of Christ and do it in your quiet time. It is going to be the means by which you can discern good from bad, right from wrong. And where you get confused, I've told you, my door is always open. I love to talk about the Bible. I eat, sleep, and breathe that. And I love to talk about it with you if you get to a point in there and you're like, I just don't understand what this means. But don't don't just walk away this morning and do nothing. Our altars are always open to my right, your left. You can come pray and people will come pray with you. If you want to pray silently and alone, you come to my left, your right. People will leave you alone. But again, don't leave without getting right with God and determining to follow his ways for your life rather than your own. And those of you watching on TV or online or listening in your car, take time to make this serious commitment today. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good and holy and righteous as we've already stated. And though that makes you higher than us and more powerful than us, the fact that you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins shows us the true content of your heart, that you love us. You love us with a love unlike any other this world has ever known. And because you love us that much, we desire to love you as well. And a part of that loving is reflecting on your love letter toward us. Help us to commit it to memory so that we might not sin against you. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.